In this episode, I interview Allie Miller, the author of The Anti-Anxiety Diet. Okay, anxiety today, how many people have it? Well, she gives you some really clear answers and some really hidden causes, but most importantly, what you can do about it. Listen, I had a pen in my hand. I, I couldn't keep up. That's how many good tips that she gives in this episode. But you know, one of the things as we look at gluten-free and keto, she talks about some of the big pitfalls that so many people are making that are actually making them more sick. So stay tuned. And we even jump into kids' health here this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cellular Healing TV. I'm Ashley Smith, and today I'm excited to introduce Allie Miller, who is a renowned expert in the ketogenic diet. She's the author of Naturally Nourished and the Anti-Anxiety Diet Book, and a registered dietitian with a contagious passion for developing clinical protocols and programs using nutrients and food as the foundation for supporting thyroid, adrenal, and hormonal balance. Her food as medicine philosophy is supported by up-to-date scientific research for a foundational approach to healing the body. You know we love this topic, so I'm excited to get started, and let's welcome Allie Miller and, of course, Dr. Pompa to the show. Welcome, both of you. Well, I, you know, I have to say, um, I hear all types of different conditions because I still coach on unexplainable illnesses. Anxiety, unexplainable anxiety is always a part of it. Uh, you know, it, it literally is, you know, something that, I don't know, I, it, it seems like, you know, every condition, whether it be thyroid conditions, diabetes, sleep problems, hormone dysregulation, low energy, and anxiety can be tapped into it. So, all right. Well, look. You know. Uh, you know. Obviously, for you to title a book, the anti-anxiety diet, it shows yeah. how prevalent this is. And you and I resonate with so many of these topics that you have in your book. And um, I just feel like so many people need to know this. Yeah. So, what inspired you? Let me start there. What inspired you to write the book? So I actually talk about in the opening of the book, my personal experience with mental health and panic attack and anxiety. And when I was at Bestier University, which is a naturopathic college of medicine, that's where I did most of my uh, education background. I was a full-time student. I am a type A individual. I wanted to not just get A's, but I wanted to master biochemistry and anatomy and physiology. I wanted to ensure that I just exuded excellence through all of the topics that I had. I took on any elective I could. I was working at an organic farm at 7 a.m. doing farm deliveries downtown in Seattle. I was also working another side job and full-time nannying and, and literally fitting 80 hours into a 40-hour week. And this is on the heels of a vegan diet and following a period of time that I was raw vegan for four months. And in that window, doing this diet that I thought was optimal, food as medicine, going to fight cancer and all of the things that I had heard in the, in the nuances, I was the most sick that I'd have ever been. I was dealing with shortness of breath. 
I was dealing with severe brain fogs, which was only frustrating me more to want to, you know, memorize and conceptualize these really complex topics. And I was dealing with heart palpitations so severe that I remember one time driving this farm truck and had to pull off on the expressway because I, I wasn't sure if I could, if I could handle it. And I went into the same naturopathic clinic in which I was practicing as a student clinician for treatment. And I started to do acupuncture and started to work with TCM herbs. And it came down to functional labs. I had a ferritin of two, which is your iron stores in the body, very, very low. I was anemic. I had clinical B12 deficiency because I was not supplementing and was a raw vegan, so virtually no sources of B12 in the diet. And I was confronted at that moment of you know, really breaking up with the dogma that I had allotted as my doctrine of a perfect diet and to really break down some of the nutritional deficiencies that I had and redefine my relationship with food. So I started learning about the GAPS diet. I really jumped into Weston A. Price and ancestral traditions of health. And I started healing my body from the inside out, working with a lot of gut therapy. And in 2009, I became a clinician and had my baby in 2016. And it was in that year that I had this aha moment of, oh, whether I'm working with, like you said, autoimmune disease, whether I'm working with hormone balance, metabolic health and stubborn you know, weight loss issues, or whether I'm working with inflammation, if anxiety or chronic stress response, whether we don't want to deem it anxiety, maybe we just want to say mismanaged chronic stress, <laughs> rumination about what was or anticipatory stress of what could be, if that isn't harnessed, that that will constantly be the Achilles heel to wellness. Yeah. And so I put this book together to really unpack the HPA axis, and I determined six R's, just because it's kind of sexy alliteration, um, of different entry points that work chicken and egg that either drive anxiety or perpetuate the chronic stress response. Yeah, and we'll, we'll discuss those R's. You know, <clears throat> just showing you how prevalent this is, you know, hearing your story, you know, then mine is almost polar opposite. Every blood test I ran was normal. You know, I, every nutrition, I, I looked at nutritional deficiencies and every doctor looked and was like, man, you're the healthiest guy we know, right? And yet I was having debilitating anxiety, insomnia, energy, gut problems. You know, it's like, and yet I just wanted to find something that was wrong. Well, like you, we both found, you know, I said, you know, gosh, I'm just going to get rid of all grains and sugar. I started realizing about, you know, different things about grains, et cetera. And some um, of my symptoms got much better, right? Just eliminating grains and sugar out of my diet. You know, and, and of course, no one really talked about gluten back then, but there was a host of uh, five different proteins that were in grains that made this condition worse. So, you know, gluten just being one of the five. And so I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to start here. If I can control my glucose uh, even more in, in some of these inflammatory reactions, then I'll feel a little bit better. I did. So we both came from different areas in yeah. realizing, okay, great. This diet can actually be, you know, uh, part of the answer, right? Yeah. It's like, and, you know, my HPA, 
uh, hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis was shot. I mean, I was downstream trying to deal with my adrenals, my thyroid for so many years with every bit of knowledge that I had. And I never got well until I got to the upstream cause, which might end up being mercury in my pituitary hypothalamus. But so, you know, but again, the diet was a big player on me being able to have some handle on controlling the symptoms. Sure. Right? It's like, so we came about it from, you know, nutritional deficiencies caused by your diet, no nutritional deficiencies, but we both had anxiety. We both had a lot of the same symptoms and we both led to the same diet. Interesting, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but so let, let's talk about the R's <clears throat> because um, you discuss it in your book. Sure. And so it's funny because I have the five R's that came out of my illness of how to fix the cell. It's See? a roadmap on cell healing. You have the five R's here, or the six R's, sorry. Um, but very different R's, but needless to say, great teaching points. So, what yes. are they? And I'm sure there'll be some Venn diagram within all of this, right? <laughs> some overlap. So, the uh, first R is to remove inflammatory foods. Mm -hmm. And so, in that chapter, I'm unpacking the trend of individuals that have elevated C reactive protein, which is, you know, that systemic marker of inflammation. And we do see higher susceptibility to mental illness. I liken that to the idea that our, you know, our neurotransmitters, if we have a lot more oxidative stress in the brain and inflammatory uh, pathophysiology in the body, our neurotransmitters are not firing and docking as adequately as they would in an individual that has optimal lower state of inflammation. Yeah. So, and then there's the connection to the gut in an inflamed state and how that houses so much of our neurotransmitter communication right. bilaterally with the central nervous system. So I demonize in that chapter, corn, gluten, soy, dairy, and sugar. And we can unpack those in a moment, but I'll, I'll name the first, the six R's. So we remove inflammatory foods and right away with sugar, I set the stage of the ketogenic diet as a foundation of my anti-anxiety diet protocol. And then the second R is to reset the microbiome. So in that chapter, I talk about symbiosis versus dysbiosis and how different neurotransmitters are made and manufactured based on the status of our gut health, which is a really important area to unpack. I work clinically with so many individuals that have parasite, candidiasis, or some form of a dysbiotic strain of gut flora, and that puts out more epinephrine. And so when you're in this state of imbalance, your body's actually sending signals saying, this isn't right, we're not safe. And often yeah. that can be a perpetuating component. Yes. Then the third R is to repair the GI lining. So here we start to talk about the gut-associated lymphatic tissue. And kind of once we've removed the inflammatory foods and reset the biome, now we're looking to really seal the tank of the gut to maintain optimal mm -hmm. status in both of those areas. The fourth R is to restore micronutrients. Sometimes I have to think through my R's because all the words kind of sound like restore micronutrient status. So I talk about the importance of methylated B vitamins. I talk about mood stabilizing minerals, strategic amino acids that actually make our neurotransmitters. 
And then the two final R's are to rebound the adrenals. And that's where I start to unpack the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access. And the sixth R is to rebalance our neurotransmitters. And in that chapter, I give a deep dive on seven focused neurotransmitters, the impact of them on the brain and the body, and then different influencing factors in the diet. You know, if you look at R1 here, um, you know, removing these inflammatory foods, you know, I, I, it's so simple what you state there, just giving those foods. A lot of people today, it's very in vogue to do food allergy testing. You know, I don't even bother with it anymore. You know what I tell people? Exactly what you said. Just remove these foods. Yeah. Because, you know, nine times out of 10, that's basically what's going to come up in the severe, you know, allergies. Now, of course, you might have, you know, something, you know, that's, that's very odd, right? But fact is, is typically people know it, you know, once they, you know, like start examining their diet a little closer, you know, it's like, gosh, when I eat this, I don't feel well. But, you know, removing those foods that you mentioned, you know, that's where you start because a lot of the, the food allergy testing is very inaccurate. And we did some testing where we would run tests on people and then a week later run them. And it was always, number one, all the foods that most people were eating. And if they change the foods, then new ones come up, right? Because leaky gut was the problem. And, you know, it was very inaccurate, even what we found, you know, that was, you know, came on the first test versus the second test uh, in a week now. So in a week later, I mean, uh, you know, the test results would be different. So I just really stopped running most of those tests and tell people exactly what you said, these five foods. So just briefly break those five down a little bit and you know why they're problematic. Sure. And I think that's a really good point because if you're removing those first three corn, gluten, and soy, that means you're removing almost all processed foods because mm -hmm. it's darn near impossible to shop anything in the middle of the grocery store that is free of soy lecithin or maltodextrin, which is a corn derivative. Mm -hmm. And so if you are really tight on eliminating those, what you're doing is resetting so that you're giving your body more clear cut data mm -hmm. and less white noise as far as what it is reacting to. Right. So it's kind of the intro of an elimination diet. Yeah. And then if you do have a true inflammatory food response to something unique, like cauliflower or pork or XYZ, at least you've kind of reset the playing field. So you should oh. be able to more clearly hear that feedback. Mm -hmm. And it really starts with a single ingredient whole food diet to be able to have that one plus two equals three connection with the body. So I think that's a great point. Uh, yeah. so, so, you know, I do remove them for various reasons. One is that some of them are high in omega-6 fatty acids. Most of our, you know, when we see inflammation in the American diet, once we went to industrialized seed oils, that was a big misnomer yeah. when we're talking yeah, about- Yeah, you know, and I, I want to be clear, I'm a big pro-omega-6 guy, right? Because okay. of the membrane. But it's but the these source. The adulterated omega-6 yes. is devastating in the seed oils are a huge thing because they, you know, they make them, these adulterated uh, seed oils, fats, make their way into the cell membrane and drive inflammation. Right, because they're oxid and they're rancid. They're rancid. And you know our cell membranes are bilipid. And so we wanna ensure that the fats that we're eating are in the closest to a whole form. Um, so you know that's one of the reasons why we're pulling out the soy and the corn. 
Also, both of those two are high genetically modified crops. 93 yep. plus percent exactly. of both of those crops in the States are going to have higher glyphosate residue from Roundup, which is a neurotoxin. So obviously, if we're working on neurological health and brain health, we want to ensure that we would remove any residue that would have a neurotoxin in it. Uh, I remove the gluten and the dairy for their inflammatory properties in the sense of the of course, we could go on. I'm sure you have episodes of episodes on gluten and um, the inflammatory protein in there. Um, we know that also the gliadin in our gluten is going to disengage our zonulin, which plays a role with our gut integrity of our gut lining, thus driving leaky gut on a kind of timestamp when you're consuming the gluten. And so that just exacerbates these larger particles getting into the bloodstream. Also on our brain, if we're talking about bipolar, mania, and really significant mental illness, we do see that gluten and dairy cross the blood-brain barrier, yep. and they interfere with our opioid receptors. So when we're talking about addictive tendency, impulse control, irritability, a lot of times the casein and the gluteomorphin from those two different food groups can be a big irritant when we're, when we're looking at mental illness. So yeah. that's some of the logic behind that. And then um, the sugar is really the first place to start actually with anyone. So, you know, if you are a parent of a toddler all the way through, you know, geriatric care, and we're talking about type three diabetes and Alzheimer's connection, blood sugar regulation is really the first foundation yeah. I would say for everyone. Yeah. And we need to get off of the blood sugar spikes and crashes. Absolutely. Uh, that's what creates, I mean, I have a four-year-old and I will say <laughs> that I am known to travel with, you know, grass-fed meat sticks and the Peterson's um, nitrite-free bacon and nut butter packs because when a child is having a tantrum, they need protein and fat. And that is what they need to mellow out their brain. Um, and unfortunately, carbohydrates are just so uh, aggressively consumed or incorrectly, I believe, in way too high of amounts they're such a driver of processed foods and they're heavily marketed to our children. And when we have blood sugar- By the spikes, way, even in health food stores. Oh yeah, oh yeah, most definitely. I mean, you have to watch out for the halo foods like you know the concentrated grape juice, which is essentially fructose as a sweetener yeah. in foods and such. Um, so by just getting the person off of the blood sugar spikes and crashes, we can start to see some level of regulated behavior, regulated energy, uh, which also helps with mood stability. You know, we've all been hangry where we're like hungry and angry from a low blood sugar crash and it makes us irritable and it makes concentration and focus very difficult. So going low glycemic to kind of bring the blood sugar into a speed bump world is the first step. And no, then, you no, know, you can- I, I agree, it's the first step. I, my very first book was The Cellular Healing Diet, which get rid of grains and sugar. And yes. in the book we talked about, you know, I talked about corn and- the, the dairy, what's happened to these products, but, yes. but it is that simple. If you control glucose spikes and insulin spikes, you'll control inflammation. If you control yep. inflammation, you'll control the brain. You'll help the microbiome, all of it, which brings us to the next R, which is basically the microbiome. Yeah. Uh, re reset your gut microbiome. You know, you, you bring out a great topic here that um, I think every parent, every human needs to hear. A lot of people, um, go to these diets, paleo, keto, but they're gravitating to a lot of these um, non-glucose rising sweeteners, which you and I agree 
can actually be even worse, especially for the microbiome. That's why you talk about it like that, yes. especially for kids. So talk about these sweeteners, what to avoid and what's what you like. Yes. So uh, I am not a fan of sugar alcohols as really yeah, me any either. They upset sweeteners. your stomach. They create right. bloating. Uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're not metabolized by the body. So they're excreted in the urine in the same molecular structure from consumption. And they create a lot of gas, a lot of bloating. So distension, belching, flatulence, loose stool, which can upset electrolyte stability in the body. And many of them are bacteriostatic, meaning they are sterilizing. And that includes stevia, which is not a sugar alcohol. Now there's some hybrid products like erythritol stevia blends, but stevia tends to get the halo effect because we think of that green leaf growing in the garden bed. Um, and I do believe that small amount of true stevia leaf is yeah, somewhat I reasonable. I, I, I think it's okay. A little yeah. Bit. But the bitter alkaloids in the leaf won't allow you to consume as much that would really drive that Pavlov's dog effect of tasting sweet and having an insulin response. And that's the other concern is we have a taste receptor in our tongue called GLP-1, glucagon-like peptidide. And this actually creates a psychosomatic response. So when we taste that sweet, we actually do have influence with our glucagon, which is a signal to the body that we do not have glucose levels and we can put out more blood sugar so we can have blood sugar spikes. Or on the other end, we can actually release insulin in some individuals where they'll have blood sugar lows and then be gauged to eat more frequently. Um, and then the, the fourth reason, aside from the bacteria, the GI distress and the blood sugar regulation on a true metabolic level, is just the fact of behavior. I really feel that if you wanna break up with sugar, I'm a huge proponent of channeling savory. And so I really want my clients and my household to experience the natural sweetness of a Marcona almond, or you know, to really be able to appreciate bitter alkaloid anti-inflammatory flavonoids. And so when you eat these non-caloric sweeteners, even if you're taking a probiotic and you're minding your biome and you know, you're not having any, you've tested your glucose and you're not having any insulin or glucose spikes in your body, every time you're in line at Starbucks or every time you're at a wedding, you're going to be white knuckling the behavior shift of wanting that cake. And I can tell you as someone that uses only whole food sweeteners, which is radical in the keto space, I actually use things like dates, banana, berries, and, and we can unpack that further in a moment, but in that world, I keep my portions so small that my palate stays savory. And I actually have a visceral reaction to those types of foods that's like disgusting. It's not that it's a behavioral that I'm telling myself I don't want it. It's truly that physiologically my body rejects sweet now. And I feel like you can't get to that place of palate shift for true sustainable behavior change if you're eating non-caloric sweeteners because you're continuing to wire that sweet is a good reward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like you said, it's the, the moderation is the key. I mean, it's Bible says a little bit of honey, you know, it's yeah. like, it's good, right? You yeah. know, and, and like I said, I mean, say that's the, you know, the stevia, people are dumping it on. I mean, all of those sweeteners, right? You, they're, they're so excitatory. Um, and then it can raise that insulin response. And then you're, you're right back to square one. But, right. um, okay, so, you know, that's, uh, I think we're going to, someone's going to ask the question, Okay, well, how much, you mentioned honey, Banana. you mentioned, yeah. um, I think maple syrup, date, 
I don't know which ones you mentioned there. Maybe I missed a few, but um, how much of those things and when and how? I mean, you give those, uh, I, you give those directions in your book, but touch yeah. on it. And the cookbook, the Anti-Anxiety Diet Cookbook actually has a whole section on this because this is kind of discussed in the anti-anxiety diet, but then I really unpacked it when I have a chapter on, you know, why I hate non-caloric sweeteners and then a table of actually the health supporting benefits of the raw and filtered honey, banana, berries. Uh, I do use the more robust maple. And so when we're talking about how much, for example, my low carb zucchini collagen muffins, which makes 12 muffins in a recipe, uses one banana, ah, banana. <laughs> and so you're getting a 12th of a banana. And that's what, again, kind of dissociates this doctrine mode of that's not a keto food, so that must not be keto, back into a reasonable, critical thinking application of, oh, let's look at the distribution and the synergy of what's going on in that one muffin that you would consume. Um, and so, you know, the recipe has things like coconut oil and almond flour and zucchini and collagen and six eggs in the recipe. So you're getting a lot of fat, you're getting protein, you're getting fiber, and then it has that one banana mashed throughout. So that 12th of a banana is providing you yeah, 3.5 yeah. grams of total carbs, not even net, you know? Um, and that's not in that, in that composition of that delivery in your body through the muffin, which you might top with almond butter or something as well even, is really not going to have a blood sugar impact. So yeah. my philosophy is that we should eat things to make things palatable and balance out that bitter, salty, sweet, you know, flavor balance in the body. So things are um, desirable and we're enjoying our foods, but that we're not creating glycemic spikes. So the how much would have to do with your muscle mass and your activity factor and your own level of insulin resistance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and also looking at your carb intake uh, for that day, because totally. you know where that is. If your desire is to stay in keto for that time, you know, how much can you, you know, take of that and stay in keto? So remember keto is it, you know, the, the, it's a low carb, right? We bring the carbs down and we force the body to burn fat and make ketones. So it would determine by that as well. Okay. So, um, the, you know, I mean, one of the things I totally agree, I, you know, I'm not, when people go gluten-free, they end up with eating these gluten-free products that have super sugars in them. Cassava totally. flours, um, tapioca flours. I mean, there, there's so many, right? But they're super sugars. So, here, you and I are saying, look, we have to control glucose. I can tell you that most uh, of these products, that gluten-free products, are not going to do that. It's quite the opposite. As well as keto, you get a lot of the alcohol sugars. You right. know, so be careful with the keto products or the what's the word I'm looking for? The box products or the... I think so. I think honestly, when something says keto on it, I'm usually very hesitant. <laughs> what's in it? Right. And gluten-free. I, I, I don't even remember. I don't ever buy gluten-free products because if they're marketing gluten-free, it's typically, you know, some type of junk food. I don't know. Right. Right. And that's where we have to really watch again, these um, kind of tunnel vision approaches to diet, especially if we're looking to use food as medicine, it's always understanding how does this alternate work in the body and, and is it superior? Because food as medicine is a double-edged sword. It's equally about the removal of the said inflammatory ingredient or irritant, as well as the abundance of, so what 
are you consuming? And so again, in the idea of full circle of the banana in this muffin, you know, you're actually getting some tryptophan, you're getting some pyridoxine or B6, which is a cofactor for your neurotransmitters. You're getting a prebiotic in that banana, which supports the microbiome. And so it's this double-edged sword of both removal, but also equally, what are you then replacing with? And does that provide therapeutic benefits? Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. The third one is uh, repairing the GI or the gut lining, um, yeah. which is huge because that's ultimately how you're going to fix the gut. I mean, the lining is everything on what nutrients pass into the body, what toxins do or don't. So what are your tips here? So I am a huge proponent of uh, supporting gut lining with therapeutic foods. So, you know, the connection is that this is the enteric nervous system or the second brain of the body, and it connects bilateral through your central nervous system as well as our periphery nervous system. And so when we're talking about our gut, this is what is going to determine a lot of the stress response, the inflammatory activity, and then of course also immunological response because yeah. we have that gut associated lymphatic tissue or the GALT housed there. So I'm going to be recommending in this space, now that you've removed your inflammatory foods and you've already worked with good gut bacteria flourishing, uh, I'm going to be recommending things like gelatin and collagen as well as bone broth. And then therapeutically, even considering things like L-glutamine and DGL, diglycerized licorice root, if there are known ulcerations or if the individual has known leaky gut. And this is kind of one of the exceptions to the rule where N equals one. Uh, if we know that leaky gut or we're individual with inflammatory bowel condition like Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, then this is an area where we may consider um, working with a component of dairy like colostrum, um, which can have really fantastic immunoglobulin support, especially in someone that has immunodeficiency. So that's where kind of we would, you know, after that 12 weeks of removal of dairy, we'd maybe bring in something like that as a consideration to support the immunoglobulin levels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. What about um, the, a lot of people are reaching for the powdered, uh, bone broth, um, what's your feeling on that versus actual bone broth? Yeah, you know, I, um, A, palate wise, I'm, I'm a foodie first and foremost. And so I do eat for optimal health, but I really enjoy the experience of food. <laughs> and I'm also someone that does like a slow simmer bone broth for that reason versus even the Instapot. A lot of people love the convenience factor of that, but I just love a slow simmered stovetop bone broth and, you know, done with a mirepoix of, you know, the classic onion, celery, garlic, and a little bit of carrot in there. And um, I find that if the broth doesn't, you know, re-gelatinize or have that collagen impact, I have question of, you know, are we really getting all of the therapeutic properties from that? So I am a big proponent of, you know, make your own, if not by frozen. I, I'm not even a big fan of a lot of the heat aseptic ones. Um, but there are some like that you can get at your farmer's market, which may be... Um, canned, if you will, or pressure sealed, and those could still maintain the integrity of the ingredients. Um, but yeah. I use bone broth on a daily basis, whether I'm like deglazing a pan or sipping on it. And um, I'm in Austin, Texas, where it is already triple digits. <laughs> so a lot of times people say, 
Allie, you want me to sip on hot meat juice now? Really? How could I do that? So I do have a table in the anti-anxiety diet cookbook called Bone Broth Five Ways. And it includes things like a bone broth Bloody Mary. It includes things like a uh, cream of kale soup made with coconut milk and um, shallots and uh, lacinato kale that's in a blender. And so it makes a really vibrant rich green sipping broth and other things that can kind of brighten up adding acid to your bone broth as a finish you know you want to add a little bit of acid in the cooking process to aid in the leaching of the nutrients out of the bones but also as a palate um, to kind of cut that heavy fat flavor profile to add acid to your broth like a little bit of lemon or lime can really help to make it more palatable as well and enough salt I just need to hire you. I, if you'd see how simple I eat, because I'm, I'm a foodie as far as like, you know, my philosophy, right? Uh -huh. But I, I, I just don't like cooking. I don't like doing anything. I don't like planting flowers or plants and I don't like cooking. <laughs> so these are the things I hire people for because I just absolutely don't like it. But anyway, but that I but I love food. I grew up yeah. in Italian food. I think because I had an Italian mother who cooked for me all the time. There you um, go. That's what she did. It was like you know my value for cooking went downhill. But anyways, <laughs> she needed me to make the food. Is what happened. But totally. um, yeah, no, that these are that's why you have your book because yeah. all these recipes, everything you're talking about, are in her book. In her book, folks, you know, right here, the ang the anti anxiety diet. There yeah. it is. So and we will put the link in here for sure. All right, let's go to the fourth one. Restore micronutrient status. Obviously, this was a big deal for you, especially coming out yes. of a vegan diet for that long and or vegetarian. Um, you know, but talk about what uh, micronutrients uh, that you feel most people have to restore. Yeah, so I go a little bit, well, I'm nerdy overall, but I go a little bit nerdy in this chapter on SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms and genetic factors of anxiety. And I do highlight MTHFR. Uh, so working with our folate in the body, as well as COMT, um, catecholamine methylase transferase. And so it's important to note that that's a big element of nutrient density because I recommend against fortified foods which is important for like new moms when we're talking about formula, when we're talking about uh, cereals and oatmeal and the idea of needing iron in the diet. When we choose fortified foods, they always have folic acid in them. And a part of this emphasis in this chapter is about the impact of B vitamins as our neurotransmitter activators, as well as a contributing factor in neurotransmitter production. And we think of B6, folate and B12 as big factors, but really every B vitamin from riboflavin to biotin to pantothenate all of them, when clinically deficient, can have a huge role in depression and anxiety. And I had to bring up the COMT piece of the puzzle because when we just focus on methylation, I think MTHFR is now sexy enough that people are proactively asking their doc, like, am I, am I MTHFR? Or, you know, what does that mean? And, you know, my first two recommendations are remove fortified foods, regardless of if you know, because you have to assume that folic acid with an IC versus methylfolate 
or folinic acid or nature folate found in liver and leafy greens, the folic acid can work against someone that has that genetic mutation. They're not able to methylate. And by the way, I, I'm not a big tester with that any longer, um, you know, because I just say like you, just, you know, assume, assume you are, treat everyone as if they are, right? Because the testing is, yeah, it's inaccurate, honestly, you know, and, it, and just because you have the sniff doesn't mean you have the problem. So just treat it like you are, avoid yeah. those foods to your and, point. And my concern is if you go too high methylfolate, so, you know, I've, I've been in this world in, of mental health for a while where, you know, Deplin is a pharmaceutical drug, which is a high dose methylfolate. A lot of people will go after five milligram plus doses of methylfolate. And if they have COMT, which is a genetic SNP, which impacts our catecholamines, which are our stress responding neurotransmitters, these are individuals that tend to run high estrogen or deal with estrogen dominance. They tend to deal with anxiety and depression as well, because what happens is they may be methylating, especially if they're driving that wheel in excess through high methylfolate supplementation then they're missing that secondary wheel of the COMT. So they get this kind of damning buildup and all of their catecholamines are really elevated because that methylation wheel helped to produce. So now they're dealing in this area of having a difficult time with um, pivoting from what they're doing in work. They get kind of tunnel vision. They have a difficulty with multitasking. They can deal with panic attack or um, really severe anxiety. So I do kind of present that as a preface in the B vitamin world as an important piece of the puzzle. Um, and with COMT, the biggest intervention is SAMe, S-adenosylmethionine, uh, which is made in the liver and uh, supplementally a fantastic mood stabilizer, also very strong clinical evidence on support with rheumatoid arthritis and inflammatory conditions. And we know that if there are elevated liver enzymes, SAMe is a really powerful intervention as well, so supports the detox pathways as well. Um, so that's one area I focus on minerals as well. So iron, which was the one that really hit me, um, as well as zinc as a big focus and chromium. Uh, we see when zinc and copper uh, relationships are off that we can see more clinical anxiety. And um, then I hit on amino acids. So I start to identify things like L-theanine, um, which can work as a modulator for our neurotransmitters, aiding in alpha wave activity of the brain. I highlight tyrosine, which supports dopamine levels. And I call it the, I was a good girl, what do I get kind of thing, where if you're in a high stress day at work, and you are going to show up at the end of that day depleted in dopamine and serotonin because we burn through dopamine and serotonin from our stress demands. So you're showing up with a void and that's why you're going to your pantry or your you know, wine cabinet or your ice cream tub before you're even registering if you are hungry. We're looking for a dopamine boost to kind of reset the button from that stress response. And so instead, I like to really do like a dopamine boosting snack. Um, so I'll do things like uh, seaweed, nori uh, sheets are really fantastic for, for dopamine That's response gross. for tyrosine, as is dark poultry. So like chicken thighs, I have a lot of chicken thighs in my cookbook for that reason. Um, and so if you're getting protein and you're able to incorporate avocado or seaweed at like a 4 p.m. snack, 
chances are that's going to help you to not have to white knuckle the discipline when you get home to wait for your dinner time. Yeah. You know, I mean, honestly, a lot of people would be listening to this going, oh my God, you know, I, how do I keep it all straight? Here's the good news. You don't, uh, you know, when you're eating whole food, real right. diet, like you talk about in your book, um, it's there in the right proportions. The problem is the processed foods. The problem is all of the fortified foods. The problem is the imbalance oftentimes even created by toxicity, because again, you know, I deal with people who are very neurotoxic that end up with deficiencies and they eat perfect, you know, yeah. but it's because they can't even absorb nutrients and uh, you yes. know, their, their cells can't even hear the nutrients or even get the nutrients in the cells, which brings me to the next topic. It's um, the adrenals, right? Yeah. How do we rebound the adrenals? You know, and again, I tried, I did everything, but again, toxicity was just whipping my adrenals, you know, was keeping sure. me in a sympathetic dominant state. And, you know, it wasn't until I got upstream to my toxic source that my adrenals normalized and I didn't even do anything. They fixed themselves. So what are some of your rebounding adrenal uh, solutions? Yeah. And I do in the nutrients address glutathione and antioxidants in that, in that area as well for that reason, because if the liver is taxed, both the SAMe and the, and the antioxidants can be very helpful in that process as well. Um, so the adrenals, I give you a quiz actually in every chapter of the book because people are going to be entering this in different ways. And I don't feel that you have to all start in the order that I've set up these R's. That was the way that my brain conceptualized this. But you know, when we're talking about the timestamp current with pandemic, this is probably a highlighted chapter for people because we're probably dealing with a lot of a chronic stress response. And um, I was in Houston during the time of Hurricane Harvey and we called it the Harvey 15. Mm -hmm. And you know, we know that this corticosteroid response can be really impactful in not just metabolism, but also the way that the brain is wired to respond to stress. It can interfere with our sleep patterns, which is when we're supposed to be the most metabolically sound and see the most neurogenesis. So we can be in overdrive mode, stressed and wired, or after the, the buzzing bee or um, fly has been going and going and going, they're going to hit that wall and collapse. And then we're in that adrenal insufficiency place or the stressed and tired world. And um, it's interesting because even symptoms that some people associate with like dysbiosis, for instance, belly bloat that is not resolving, that can often be from too low of cortisol levels in the body. Um, histamine reactivity can be associated with inadequate cortisol because cortisol is an, an antihistamine. Um, so everything in the body has a sweet spot and an optimal place. And too much cortisol is going to make us irritable, kind of like incredible Hulk mode, um, have insomnia and uh, be more kind of keyed up, if you will, physiologically at an unrested place. And also with high cortisol, we can see glucose abnormalities, elevations in blood sugar. And then when cortisol levels plummet, that's when we can see the belly bloating, we can see chronic fatigue, we can see severe brain fog, and we can see more of that histamine response. Yeah, had all those. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh God, remember those days. Okay, the, the last one is rebalancing neurotransmitters. And for those people, uh, neurotransmitters are brain chemicals. So yes, yes. Make so you feel good, make you feel normal, make you sleep, anxiety. I mean, that make you happy. These are all yeah. neurotransmitters. How do we rebalance them? 
So I unpack in that chapter, uh, the inhibitory versus excitatory neurotransmitters. And so I mentioned that big word catecholamines, those are actually made by the adrenal glands. So in the cortex of the adrenals is where we make that cortisol and DHEA, which does play a role with ketosis. Uh, as well as our aldosterone for blood pressure control. But in the medulla of the gland is where we make our dopamine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine. And those are those catecholamine, excitatory, stress-responding neurotransmitters. So when we're looking at the balance of anxiety, we want to see where we're falling in all of these levers. And unfortunately, with you know modern-day medicine, the, the first go-to of any sign of depression or anxiety is giving an SSRI without digging in any of these R's. So they're right away going to that, not even rebalanced neurotransmitters, they're going to manipulate the receptor function of a neurotransmitter. And it's not as simple as that. It's not a you know dart on a bullseye. Serotonin is the most known or famous, I would say, of our neurotransmitters in the world of mood stability. But I've worked with hundreds of clients that have normal serotonin levels and are still dealing with debilitating anxiety. So it can be just like a symphony if one instrument is playing too loud or one instrument is not getting expressed the imbalance of the outcome of the song or you know, of our day-to-day functionality. So it could be that an individual, for instance, is putting out too much epinephrine, which in layman's terms is adrenaline, and that can perpetuate panic attacks or chronic anxiety. It may be that they're not putting out enough GABA. GABA is an inhibitory compound, so serotonin and GABA live in that space. And I think GABA is equally as important in the world of anxiety and more so in the physiological sense. So when we think of Parkinson's disease, that's a a kind of wide seen impact of not having optimal GABA receptor function where individuals have uncontrolled tremors. But even if we think of like first date or public speaking or any time truly that I have to speak to a crowd that's larger than 250, I take a bioidentical GABA chew because I know that I'm keyed up for adrenaline. You know, that's that performance anxiety that's very classic. And I know that when I'm holding a microphone, I don't want that shake. I don't want that dry mouth. I don't want that palpitation in the chest. Um, And we've seen that GABA when optimized is not inhibitory in a sedative way. It can actually help. We've seen an academic performance. It can help also athletes to get in the zone. We're talking about like free throws and such. We do see that GABA aids in concentration and focus, but it is anxiolytic or it is calming. And it's especially expressed in the peripheral system. So that's where, again, kind of the physiological responses can mellow out because Often, if we're physiologically experiencing some of these signs of stress, that plays then the chicken and egg of the brain saying, oh gosh, calm down, what's going on? You know, you notice these feedback things and then it just kind of can go off kilter. You know, it's amazing. You know, when I was sick, my neurotransmitters were so off, right? I mean, obviously, you know, insomnia, depression, panic attacks, anxiety, you know, I mean, just absolute, you know, imbalance was occurring in my body i because of my brain i i literally at one point was trying to balance it all i would be like okay it's this and and my gaba receptors i'm taking you know this and i'm and and i don't remember when it happened but man it's like something 
made me realize my own philosophy is remove the interference, the body can fix it. You know, yes. it's like, it, it, you know, so many people are out there going, oh my gosh, how do I do that? How do the body can do it. You right. know, the body does it better than any doctor. I mean, honestly, it knows what genes you have. It knows what SNPs you have. It knows where by. It has all of that hormone imbalance, neurotransmitter imbalance. It has it figured out. But we have to get upstream. The first thing you need to do, change the diet. Right? Yeah. It's like, you know, we, her, Allie and I both discovered that. We had to change the diet. For many of you, that may be all. But yeah. for many of you, you may have an upstream neurotoxic issue like I did which is throwing you out of balance, get to the cause. And I'll tell you, your body's doctor, uh, scientist yes. will figure it out. You know, Ali, I think that, like you said, you give so much great advice. I, I think Thank the book you. is yeah, great. I, I know Ashley could speak for it too. Um, you know, your recipes, I, I, I love your basic approach to it. I couldn't agree more. So I, I just thank you so much for coming on. Uh, this is a big topic. People yeah. need to start with what you say here, right? You know, and, and breaking it down in those things. Yeah, that's that's what's going wrong with people today. So thank you again for being here. And we're gonna put the link for Allie's books. Allie, can we give you the last word of advice for the people watching with anxiety and sleep problems and all those things we mentioned? <laughs> sure. So the only one outside of food that I will give you, because I think that lifestyle has to meet as well. Um, I'm a huge proponent because, because like you said, we can get nuanced into the like yeah. seaweed does this, but this and that, and, <laughs> and I, you know, there are, there are absolutely, and I think it's good to be empowered in the nerd element of in, incorporating choline rich foods for acetylcholine and glycine for the, for the GABA and all these things. But at the end of the day, it's really important that we also work proactively to kind of harness the wild stallion of the brain. And I'm a huge proponent of breath work and mantra in that space. And so with breath work, something I just want to leave as an action tip that everyone can do literally right now as we're, as we're listening and watching is uh, the four, seven, eight breath that Dr. Andrew Weil uses and has been studied in a lot of clinical research studies. It's one of the only forms of breath work that actually can get us into a parasympathetic state. So that regulatory state from that sympathetic fight or flight mode with just three cycles of use, which can take less than a minute and a half's time. Yeah, and so it's inhaling for four through the nose with sealed lips. It's holding for seven, and then it's exhaling for eight with like a whooshing, like a shh. And when you do that, that process of four in through the nose with sealed lips, holding for seven and shushing out with the, the mouth as, a, as eight out. That two to one exhale to inhale, it's like you're pressing the air out of a tire. And mm. that, that release actually allows the body to feel safe and mm. can like a light switch allow us to get into that parasympathetic space. So wow. that's a huge thing that I'd leave you with. And then I would just say that the book has a lot of mantra and we even nerd out on things like the nocebo effect, the fact that oh, negative yeah. thoughts can harm you and um, can create perpetuated stress response. Well, you are so right about that. What a great way to cap it off. So geez, Allie, I mean, just a wealth of knowledge on these subjects. So you live it. That's why you own it. <laughs> so, <laughs> thanks again for being on Cell TV. My pleasure. Well, that's it for this week. 
I hope you enjoyed today's episode, which was brought to you by Fastonic Molecular Hydrogen. Please check it out at getfastonic.com. We'll be back next week and every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern. We truly appreciate your support. You can always find us at cellularhealing.tv. And please remember to spread the love by liking, subscribing, giving an iTunes review, or sharing the show with anyone who may benefit from the information heard here. And as always, thanks for listening.